When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Rob Wolf, and this is New Books in Science Fiction, the Zero Gravity Edition. On today's show, I'm chatting with Khan Wong, whose debut novel, The Circus Infinite, is set on a pleasure planet frequented by the species of the Nine Star Congress, an alliance of nine species that includes humans. Although the citizens of the Alliance live at a time when faster-than-light travel is possible, they still enjoy the old-fashioned entertainment of a circus, with acrobats, clowns, and fortune-tellers, although maybe in this case the fortune-teller looks like a big insect. In addition to being a writer, Khan Wong is also an internationally known hula-hoop teacher and performer who has toured with a circus, taught workshops all over the world, and produced circus arts shows. And he's with me on Skype right now from his home in San Francisco. Hi, Khan. It's great to have you on the podcast. Hi, Rob. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It is an absolute pleasure to have you with me. I know we're here to talk about the Circus Infinite, but we have to start with the hula hoop. (laughs) So how did you get into doing, and I don't know if that's even the right verb do you do the hula hoop you you hula the hoop uh, how, how did you get into it and to teaching it too i i used to be a fire dancer i started fire dancing with a prop called poi which is i, I know this is kind of, it's a roundabout way of getting to the answer to your question but this is how it happened so i started fire dancing with these props called poi which are derived from Maori tradition, although it's done differently with fire anyway. And once I started learning how to do that, I was introduced to a whole community of people who did it all with different props, including hoops. So, you know, I started getting curious and trying out some of the other props that people use. And when I tried the hoop for the first time, something just clicked. And I got really obsessed (laughs) with it. And I started applying techniques from other props to the hoop. 
and started developing kind of my own way of moving with it. I treated hooping like a sort of movement meditation. So I wasn't going like trick to trick. I was kind of figuring out ways to dance with the hoop and treating the hoop as my as a dance partner. And I started getting noticed in the hoop community for the way I moved and some of the techniques I was doing. Um, and And so once that started happening, which resulted from mostly from putting videos up on early YouTube. People who are organizing workshops and hoop retreats and festivals and things like that started inviting me to come and teach. So that's how all that happened. And then, you know, the more I said yes to things, that would lead to further invitation. Like, you know, somebody in the workshop that I taught would come up to me and be like, oh, hey, I'm organizing blah, blah, Would you want to come? So that's how all that happened. I had no idea there was such a thing as the as a hoop community and hoop retreats. It's there's there's so many things I don't know. Yeah, it's gotten quite big. The the retreats uh, seem to have fizzled out. It wasn't really a very sustainable model. You know, it was very expensive to put on these events, and a lot of the people in the hoop community and the broader flow arts is kind of an umbrella term for all the different props you know it's a lot of hippies that don't have a lot of money <laughs> so but it, it, there was a real flourishing of these kind of events uh, for about a 10-year period there's still some fire focused gatherings that that still happen and this was connected with the circus as well because you performed in in the circus i was never like a formal member of a troupe i kind of was a pickup artist. And a friend of mine ran a circus project that toured through Southeast Asia, like a kind of social circus project and visiting uh, hill tribe communities and refugee camps from folks fleeing Myanmar. And I did a tour with that circus project uh, one year. It was quite a while ago. Yeah, so that was that was my like, formal being on tour with the circus experience, and then I've done local to the Bay Area, just random performances here and there, uh, corporate parties and things like that. You've had firsthand experience with the circus, a circus, the circus experience, and and you've chosen to write about it in the Circus Infinite. So I guess let's dive in and talk about the book. The story takes place on a moon called Persephone Nine. It's a moon of a gas giant planet. And Persephone 9 is a bit like, it sounds to me, the Las Vegas of the Nine Star Congress, a place where a little bit of anything and everything goes. And the main character, Jess, he is on the run and he's running away from a place called the Institute. And he picks Persephone 9, I guess, as one could imagine, someone running away might might choose a place like that because it seems like a place he could disappear into and uh, maybe a place that he his pursuers might think he's unlikely to go. So he's trying to find a, a place to hide. So maybe we could just start off with you telling our listeners a little bit about Jess. Who is he and, and why is he on the run? So Jess is mixed species. There's a species in the Congress called the Rigula. And his father is one of that species, and his mother is human. And each of the species in the Nine Star Congress have some form of psychic ability, which people can 
develop or not or choose not to develop. These kind of psionic abilities are available to anyone who chooses to learn. It's not like you have to be born with magic or have be strong in the force or anything like that. So anyway, his mother is descended from folks who have developed these psionic abilities, as is his father. And as a result of, or it's suspected that as a result of his being a hybrid of two different species, he develops an ability that is highly unusual. And that is what lands him in the Institute because they want to figure out the source of his powers and how they work and if they can make more people like him. But the, you know, the Institute as these things go is not exactly a humane place, uh, which is why he escapes and goes on the run from them. He is empathic. So one thing about the powers in this universe is that they are planet bound. So the, Members of these species who choose to develop these abilities can access the abilities only when they're on their home worlds, but not when they go off world, with a couple of exceptions, one of which uh, humans have a highly developed empathic sense and intuitive abilities, which go wherever they go. They also can develop telepathy and telekinesis and clairvoyance, but those abilities only function when they're on the human homeworld. So uh, I'm getting kind of rambling and getting a little... It's a testament to how carefully you've thought through the system, the world, the way, the rules of how these things function. And it, it fits, it's very seamless in the novel. I mean, you're explaining it now, but it comes out in a very seamless way when you're reading the story. That's how I feel like world building should work. Um, but all this is to say, all this is background to explain why it is that and how it is that Jess is unusual and why those at the Institute are so interested in him. There's a few things I'd like to pursue based on what you said. And I want to check your comfort level here with talking about what his uh, his secret power is. I mean, it's something we learned fairly early in the story. So I thought it might be OK if we talked about it here. It's not really a spoiler, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's so, uh, yeah. So what what is his secret? Because uh, it is. Um, it certainly does make him unique, and it and it does play an important role in some some plot twists. Yeah, he so he has the ability to manipulate gravity, and the institute's term for it is localized gravity manipulation, and that's something that until just arrives, nobody else has demonstrated the ability to do this. So um, that's what the institute is researching him for and trying to figure out how that works. When he's at the Institute, there are some other young people with their own very unique powers. And if I'm not mistaken, are they all also coming from parents of different species? Yes, they are all hybrids. On the one hand, we learn about a lot of xenophobia in this Nine Star Congress, which is interesting because the existence of this Congress seems to show a willingness to get along and a certain harmony among these different species. And yet there are among some members of these species a sense of their own superiority or at least their own exclusivity. You know, they don't believe in interspecies Congress, or no, uh, you know, these sexual relations or having children. And yet you've chosen to focus on those characters in this story. And not only that, they also seem to be, some of them anyway, 
imbued with special gifts. So it's almost as if this this thing that some people think is a abhorrent or to be discouraged results in something wonderful, you know, in the case, for example, of Jess, who has this amazing ability to manipulate gravity. Uh, that is, yes, that is true. That is what you say is true. <laughs> there are there are two species in particular that are members that, um, so the Rajala, which is one part of Jess's heritage, and then a species called the Asuna that really joined up for pragmatic reasons more than reasons of like being open of openness or cultural exchange or anything like that there's a character who is a asuna a young asuna woman esme who just befriends and she is on persephone nine with her parents who are kind of rigid sticks in the mud at least in the beginning of the book and they're kind of snobbish and they're upper crusty asunans if that's the adjective or the, the name of the or Asunites uh, and Asunians. Just Asuna. <laughs> right. That's that's better. That's cleaner. She she sort of has to rebel in some ways. We witness her rebellion. And by the end of the book, her father makes this observation that that the future, he thinks, will belong to the mixing of the cultures, you know, which is not how he and his spouse felt at the beginning of the story. That does seem to be one of the themes of your story, I think. I mean, the circus brings together a, a lot of people who are also, not all, but some who are of mixed species as well. And just like, I guess, circuses all around the world that sometimes attract kind of misfits or people who don't fit in other places, or at least that's the the stereotype in literature. That's how they're often portrayed. I mean, it's also the case in your story, but there's also the sense that that's the way of the future as well. I don't know if you'd agree with that or what, if you have any thoughts about that. I, you know, I, t I tend to let themes emerge organically in the writing of a story and try not to be too heavy handed about it. But the kind of strength and diversity is, is definitely something that I had at the forefront of my mind when kind of conceiving of this world. I'm not sure how how much to, more to say about that. I mean, I, I yeah, diverse cultural diversity, ethnic, racial diversity, sexual diversity of sexuality and gender expression, however you want to define it, is I think a beautiful feature of humanity, and it kind of breaks my heart. That well, not just kind of it breaks my heart and sends me into pits of despair sometimes when I think about the kind of prejudices and bigotries that exist in our culture and that are being inflamed these days in, in a way like it, I feel like we're going backwards in, in some respects. There's so much potential and like the kind of beautiful expression of society that we're missing out on because uh, some people are so intent in their hatred and then it forces other people into self-defense mode. And as a result of that, nobody is focused on moving forward and evolving. I hear you. Yeah, it definitely does seem that there has been some backsliding as people find a way to divide, capitalize on division and ignorance. Talking about sexual diversity or diversity of sexual expression, Jess is ace, or as he describes it, asexual pan-romantic. 
And I think there are probably a lot of characters in books who are ace, just as there are a lot of people in the world who are. But I haven't personally come across a lot of characters or people, I suppose, who talk about it openly. And I found Jess's frankness when he tells his circus friends about his asexuality very refreshing. How was it for you writing an ace character, and why did you want to make Jess ace? Uh, well, it was liberating <laughs> and and in a lot of ways uh, to just be explicit about it. And this is, I mean, Jess certainly isn't the first ace protagonist in a, or character in a book, but it's representation that I felt was necessary. Uh, you know, I myself have come to realize my own identity as being on the asexual spectrum later in life. When I was younger, I, I didn't have the vocabulary and, and certainly there was no like internet to find community about it um, growing up. So, uh, you know, and but I have always been romantically attracted to men. So I just kind of went default gay. But I always found myself kind of uncomfortable in hypersexualized spaces and never really understood why. I mean, I just thought that that I was socially awkward or there's something wrong with me or, or whatever. Anyway, so part of wanting to write an ace protagonist was to kind of get an aspect of my own experience into the character. But also I was fascinated by the idea of an asexual empath in a location, in a hypersexualized location, um, as a pleasure moon is, you know, a lot of people there to party and to get laid and to indulge their kinks and whatever. <laughs> the book doesn't go super into <laughs> explicit detail on that front, but just so listeners understand, it's <laughs> it's not erotica. And so I was fascinated by an asexual character who had empathic abilities, who could sense these feelings from other people, but didn't really experience them naturally himself. And I thought that there could be some cool character moments that arose out of that tension. And he does have a romantic interest. I mean, there's the another member of the Circus Beau who, although I guess he says he is an ace, he says he isn't really super into sex and they can be romantic together. It's a nice relationship. It's a nice portrayal. Part of the story is about saving the circus. They want to find a way to meet the demands of a rather nasty... Uh, is he renting the space to them, or he's the backer, the financial backer, and they he wants more money? He's a financial backer, and he owns the property that the circus occupies. So he's kind of their landlord, too. But he is a crime boss, and basically in this part of town, anybody who wants to do business has to get his approval. Right. And he and he's squeezing them for more money. So they're trying to figure out how to make the circus even attract more people and more popular and, you know, make more money. And one idea they come up with is to to give the circus a narrative thread, you know, give it a story. So it's not just, you know, a bunch of acts, but there's actually a story being told. And, you know, a character ends up being on a quest. And I just thought that was interesting. It's sort of like a little bit of a story in a story or a commentary on story making. You know, the writer, you're sort of dipping down and saying, aren't narratives fascinating? <laughs> That's what really holds, holds, holds our attention, isn't it? And I guess it's universal among all these different species, you know, that telling a story is what, even though it's not even a complicated one, you know, they make the point that it doesn't have to be a complicated story, but people can just 
I don't know if it's empathy or intellectual curiosity. They want to they wanna follow the character along to the end. I think it's both of those things are at, are at play. You know, humans love stories, and I imagine that if we ever encounter other intelligent species, that they would have their own forms of narrative as well. It just, I can't imagine that they wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, you know, stories is how you, we communicate our experience of reality, or at least one way. And art is a big theme of the book, too. I mean, you have everyone who is performing in the circus is an artist, and there's even an art show that Esme's mother goes to. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of commentary about art. I kind of wanted to explore that a little bit, maybe your experience as, a, as an artist, what it's like trying to find the medium of expression. I mean, you were talking about fire dancing and then using the hoop, and now you're a writer. You're sort of on your own quest, it sounds like, as an artist, expressing yourself creatively in these different mediums. Yeah, uh, that was uh, also a deliberate choice. One of my kind of credos that I live by is art will save us. And I've worked my entire day job, (laughs) working career, in the nonprofit arts. So I've experienced and witnessed such a huge variety of different art forms and different stuff, you know, dance, music, different styles of dance, different styles of music, film, literature, like visual art, just the whole gamut. And I personally believe that creativity and creative expression is a human birthright. I mean, I feel like that's like making things, making beautiful things that give shape and meaning to our experience of life is what we're here for. But the way that society is set up <laughs> under under capitalism and the way that our education system, tra- it's like it trains the creativity right out of us. You know, and I bring up capitalism because, you know, under the system, everything, it's like everything has to be a product. Um, and if it's not making somebody money, then, or if you can't make money off of it, then it's not worth doing, you know, and I really resist that. And I think our rates of depression would be less if folks allowed themselves to have their creative hobbies and not put pressure to, you know, you have to, you have to be Picasso level or else don't bother painting or you know you have to sing like Whitney Houston or don't bother singing you, you, know, you know I mean we, there's this ad, there's this attitude that unless you're virtuosic and excellent at something like then don't bother doing it and I, I feel like we would be a happier people if everybody just sang what was in their heart or painted what they saw in their imagination and and that was just part of the culture and not necessarily driven to to make a product that sells for a painting that sells for a million dollars or a song that gets streamed a million times or whatever, you know. It is how we get validation, though, isn't it, by the number of clicks or making money? I mean, we're trained. It doesn't have to be that way, I suppose. But you feel like a failure if you're a writer and you your book you can't sell your book, you know, or you can't get that agent rather than experiencing the pleasure of the process by all means try to get an agent try to sell your book but if you're enjoying also the process of writing that can be an end unto itself 
yeah, it can. And and I think that's, I mean, I, I, not, not just writing, but any art form, I guess is what I'm saying, can be an end to itself. But it's this the mindset of the culture that we live in that makes it not so. So, uh, yeah, so I wanted to cr- create a world where art and artists are actually valued. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit about the journey you've taken as a writer. You wrote on John Scalzi's blog that you started a book, it sounded like decades ago, maybe 20 or more years ago, that wasn't science fiction. And ultimately, that story didn't come together. And you went on and did other things. And eventually, you came back to writing. And I wasn't clear if if the Circus Infinite is sort of second generation version of that original story, or it's just a new story. But in any event, things came together now for you as a writer. Yeah, after many years. <laughs> yeah, that, that book that I alluded to, that I almost got published, and when I got and they and got me an agent and everything in the 90s, was, it was science fiction, but it wasn't space opera. It was more, it was set on Earth, and it was more of a corporate dystopia post-climate collapse thing. And this is kind of an aside, but what some of the feedback that I had gotten was some of the climate changes that I talked about happening. Some of the feedback I got back in the 90s was that it was was just too unrealistic and things aren't going to be that drastic. (laughs) And now, yeah, we we know that that's not the case but it just it's it's funny to me and so i kind of want to go back to the people who gave me that feedback 25 years ago and be like well what do you think now (laughs) you were visionary that's the problem with the visionary people don't recognize it at the time they don't see it (laughs) yeah i digress anyway so so that book almost got published in the end it didn't happen it got turned down by by a bunch of people but but one publisher in particular kept asking for revisions I did two rounds of revision for them without an offer. And then in the end, that they declined it. But I was told by my agent that essentially the editorial staff loved the book, but it was somebody in marketing who was like, oh, we don't know how to sell this. And that's what killed it. And I just was so disheartened and kind of disgusted <laughs> that a team of folks at the publisher could be into a project but then somebody in marketing has the power to just veto it all. You know, like the internet was in its infancy then, and I had found online writing community, certainly not to the level that I have around me now. And I don't know, if I had, I might have not taken a writing hiatus the way that I did. And shortly after that, my agent dropped me as a client by fax, <laughs> which I, I kind of laugh. I still have it actually stuck in the file. <laughs> but like she sent a fax to my day job fax machine. Wow. Dropping wow. me as a- <laughs> Well, you should look for it because faxes are no- were notorious for the ink. It's probably just a white sheet of paper now, a yellow sheet of paper with no ink on it because they would fade. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm going kind of long about this story. Uh, so, so after that experience, I set both that project and my writing aspirations aside and focused on my pursuing my career in nonprofit arts administration and got sucked into Burning Man and circus culture. And during my time away from writing, I was doing all that stuff and, and playing music. So then a few years ago, I was on vacation and in Berlin. And I mean, the, the specifics aren't that 
super important, but I think that being away from my day-to-day life and in a city that where I don't live contributed to my mindset and just being open. And I was thinking about that story and feeling kind of like it was this loose thread in my life, like I walked away too soon or whatever kind of feeling. And on that trip, I uh, had a late night conversation with a couple of friends who were talking about their own writing projects that they dreamed about. And and the three of us made this pact that night that we would write these projects that we had been talking about. Uh, So I revisited that novel, rewrote it, and it didn't really work. Then I decided to take it off world and have it not be on earth. And that version came closer, but it also didn't work. But at the end of that version of the story, humanity is invited to join this alliance of worlds. And so that sparked, oh, well, who is this alliance of worlds? You know, who who are these people and, and how does it all work and stuff? And so that's when I did all the world building for the Nine Star Congress of Conscious Worlds. That's the full title. And I initially started to write a murder mystery set in this world. And I might go back to it, but it kind of just wasn't clicking for me. And on my writer bucket list had been to write a circus story, but I had never conceived of it as being a circus in space or an alien circus or anything. But I had done all this world building and then decided that this murder mystery idea wasn't quite working or it wasn't the right time or I just hadn't figured it out yet or whatever. And then I thought, oh, why don't I do this circus story in this world? And it all just kind of fell into place once I had that revelation, basically. So the first draft of this book came very quickly. I drafted it in three months. Uh, you know, and then there was like over a year of revisions, but but the the initial draft came very quickly. Well, that's a wonderful story of how a writer's mind works, you know, I, jumping from one idea to another and not giving up. I, I can very much relate to having these feelings at moments where something isn't working or the idea isn't quite right or I've written something and I'm not happy with it, but just not giving up because maybe the next thing. And I love how it, how you almost accidentally or maybe not accidentally, but intuitively created the foundation for this world, which then becomes this perfect setting for the Circus Infinite. So... So there's something very inspiring in the route you've taken to get to where you are. And and now the Circus Infinite is out in the world and has been since March. And people can and should pick up a copy, I say. Thank you. <laughs> I say so, too. <laughs> Excellent. Well, so thank you so much. This has really been great. It's really been fun talking to you about the Circus Infinite and about you and hula hoops and art and writing and i'm really glad you came on the show thank you for having me this was fun i can't believe it's the end already i've been talking to con wong about the circus infinite which as i said came out in march from angry robot and i want to thank everyone for listening and remind people that they can subscribe to the podcast if they aren't already subscribing and i don't know why they're not and please consider leaving a nice review if you've enjoyed the show Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. And I am Rob Wolf. I edit the show. Marshall Poe is editor and founder of the New Books Network. And Leanne Wilson is the co-editor. 
and I hope everything is going well and people are having a lovely spring and stay healthy and keep on reading. <laughs>